you know, if, if, uh, pardon me a moment, my daughter's knocking on the door. Oh, that's okay. I'll be right back. My uh, daughter just got a new fish. Oh, how exciting. <laughs> What's the name? I haven't heard yet. Oh. Um, it's like, yeah, I'll come see it later. Uh, That's fun. <laughs> This podcast addresses serious topics such as suicide that may be upsetting to some. Please use discretion while listening. Hey everyone, it is Monday again, and you know what that means. It's another episode of Mental Illness and Me. And I'm excited today to talk to a childhood friend of mine, Stephen. He is going to first tell us a little bit about himself to help us get to know him better as a person separate from mental illness. So Steve, let's hear a little bit about you. Well, first and foremost, I am a dad. Um, I have an eight and a half year old little girl. We, my wife and I have been married for uh, 14 years. Um, I, I have a PhD in Hispanic literature, uh, which has not unfortunately landed me a job in that field because of what's going on in academia at the moment. Uh, so my principal job is working with Teddy Bear Cancer Foundation as their family and donor care associate. So basically working with both the families and the donors, um, you know, making sure everything flows smoothly from one end to the other, as it were, and doing some translation work and interpreting work with them as well. Wow, that's awesome. Tell us what got you involved in that organization. I was first connected with Teddy Bear Cancer Foundation uh, because of my daughter. Um, a couple of years ago, in the, on St. Patrick's Day of 2018, my daughter was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Um, we were airlifted out to UCLA and basically just transplanted there with no warning. So my job, my, everything got put on hold. And so we were racking up bills with no way to pay them. And uh, we needed some help. And there are a lot of organizations that will help families in those situations, but, uh, and Teddy Bear Cancer Foundation was one of them. They provided several thousand dollars of support. But while a lot of other organizations drop off some money and then go help other people, Teddy Bear didn't leave us alone. Um, they have other programs, support groups, and holiday events and things that kept us connected to them. And after my daughter finished her treatment, uh, I was like, all right, it's time to get back into the job market. And things were still not panning out with academia. And I eventually just prayed and said, let me find the job where I need to be. And I got the impression I needed to check Craigslist, which is not where an educator would normally be looking for a job. Right. But I found that Teddy Bear Cancer Foundation was hiring for somebody with my skill set. Wow. And I was like, okay, this is the, the answer to the prayer. That is amazing. So, so how long have you been doing that now? Uh, almost exactly a year. And what do you think of it? I love the work that we're doing. Uh, I am, I, I've always been proud of the work that I do because I always, you know, put all that I can into my work and try my best to help people through my work. I've never been prouder of the work I'm doing than I have been with Teddy Bear Cancer Foundation. It gives me opportunities to tap into every skill set I have to help these families. I mean, what a what an amazing turn your career path took. 
but you are, I, like you said, you are able to utilize your skills in Spanish in that capacity, which is really exciting. Yeah, definitely. Um, we've been doing during coronavirus, of course, we haven't been able to do a lot of our in-person groups and events. So as sort of something for the little kids, I've been doing some uh, story readings on YouTube, story time with Steve, we're calling it, and I've been doing it in both English and Spanish. There's a, a split in the families that we uh, serve, you know, some English speaking, some Spanish speaking, and I want to make sure we serve them both. I bet they love that. That is so cool. I love that. So what are some of your other interests besides um, your career and your family? Uh, I also love to sing. Uh, I've been singing a cappella, particularly barbershop, since uh, I was 12. And um, my, my versatility is, I think, my greatest strong suit where uh, music is concerned. Of course, Katie and I sang in a jazz choir together in high school. Uh, yes, we were both we in the did. tenor section. <laughs> yes, we did. And uh, when, when my daughter was first diagnosed and I realized we were going to be stuck in the Santa Monica area, I was like, all right, I need to do something for my mental health. What am I going to do? And I said, I need music. If there's one thing I can do for me, it's music. And so I found the local barbershop chapter, the Santa Monica Oceanaires, and joined with them. It, it provided an instant brotherhood. Right. Which yeah. I'm sure you needed very much at that time. Desperately. Yeah. So, Steve, you deal with an illness that we know as bipolar disorder. But I really think that this is an illness that is extremely misunderstood by a lot of people. What are some of the weird theories or things that you've heard about people who have bipolar disorder over the years? Well, before I understood it better myself, I had always assumed that it meant the people who have these rapid, strong, uncontrollable mood swings going from despair to crazy from, you know, to like, bouncing off the walls for, in the blink of an eye. Right. Yeah, that's sort of the public perception of what bipolar means. Extremely unpredictable and that, that sort of almost cartoonish and sometimes literally cartoonish uh, representation of what bipolar is. Right. Right. So what is the reality of what it is for you? Well, I should specify what I have is what's called bipolar type 2. Oh, um, what does that mean? The It means that it tends more towards the depressive end of things. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I really have very few manic moments, and they don't tend to last very long when I do have them. But I have long troughs of depression uh, instead. With the a type 1, there's more of an even split. Looking back, I can see it affecting all the way back to elementary school. You know, I, I had suicidal thoughts going as far back as sixth grade. Um, but it was when I was a missionary in Guatemala that it really hit me. You know, I, um, th those thoughts started coming back in earnest and just loss of motivation, um, that that's one of the really big things that people don't see about um, any kind of cyclical depression like this, whether it's bipolar or just a you know 
clinical depression is the loss of motivation to do anything, whether it's for yourself or for someone else. Now, I've never had a day where I absolutely could not get myself out of bed, but I've certainly had days where I couldn't do anything productive, even right. though I did get out of bed. And I wonder what that is. Um, I've certainly been through periods of depression myself and have felt those exact same feelings. And I wonder, I think for me, it's just being completely overwhelmed with everything out there that there is to do and feeling like even attempting to uh, scratch the surface of what there is that needs to be done is feels futile. I don't know. What do you think it is for you? For me, I've it's a similar thought. I have often felt as though it's a malfunction in the way my body processes stress. During healthier periods, I tend to simply see it as a different and less healthy way of processing stress. Um, I, I try not to use words like broken and malfunction, but it's, uh, it does sometimes feel that way. And this is combined with uh, attention deficit disorder, which further wreaks havoc on motivation and stress levels. Um, you know, as you were saying, thinking about everything that you have to do, well, with attention deficit disorder, you think about everything you have to do at the same time and have trouble prioritizing it. Interesting. So did your ADD diagnosis happen before the bipolar disorder diagnosis? Yeah, that one came in uh, at the end of junior high. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, I, I, it's kind of funny. I went back and spoke with some of my elementary school teachers and mentioned this to them, and they said, "Of course you had ADD. Did you? Did did you? No one know. Oh, did nobody tell you before that? Like, <laughs> no, nobody had even mentioned it to me." Yeah, so that one was diagnosed in junior high. The depression was diagnosed uh, when I was 20. So tell me, what was the process of the diagnosis for for bipolar disorder? Because you said you don't really have manic periods as much. So why did they choose that diagnosis as opposed to clinical depression? It's a diagnosis which has evolved in part in seeing how it has responded to different forms of medication. Now, a, a diagnosis is only useful in as far as that label um, helps you to find the right kinds of treatment and live your life the way you need to. And having the bipolar label is slightly more useful for me than the clinical depression label was. That's the one that I, that I initially got um, while I was a missionary. Okay. And so they started giving me medications that go with that. And I found myself getting really angry. And I said, well, this can't be right. Now, with the bipolar diagnosis, being angry can go with that manic side of things. And so that, that was one of the indications later on that this is what it might have been. When I'm unmedicated, the... Normal periods are more rare than depressed periods. You know, the depressed mood shifts up and down a bit, but my life is sort of in that depressed mode without the medications. And it's it hits harder and stronger and longer. 
uh, that's when I start having that suicidal ideation um, <clears throat> is when I'm not properly medicated. The one period during which it, uh, well, it's not that it failed me. It's that I failed it as it were. Uh, after my daughter was diagnosed, um, I lost all sense of routine and stopped really taking care of myself. Yeah, that is a tough one. And uh, that meant that I f forgot my medication more often than I took it. Oh, I've been there. Yeah. It, when you're, <laughs> at least for me, when I'm out of my routine, that is the first thing to go. And it's not that I don't want to take it. It is just so hard to remember to do it and to keep up with the consistency of the time of day that I take it. And yeah, it's very frustrating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so yeah, I got to the end of that first month and realized that my pill bottles were still almost full. Right. And that's when you need it the most is during. Those, exactly. You know, that's that's rough. Um, how did you navigate your way through this very traumatic time for you and your wife and your daughter while dealing with your mental illness? With great difficulty. Uh, <laughs> as what, obviously our, our greatest resource was each other. Um, you know, being able to be there for each other. I also find that I feel best about myself when I am helping someone else. Right. And being there every day to help. You know, my, my wife was staying in the hospital with my daughter. Um, but only one parent is actually allowed to stay with the child. So I was staying in hotels and charity houses nearby. Um, but going there every day and feeling like I was serving my family in that way helped keep me going. Seeing how strong my daughter was during all of this um, was inspirational. Finding those friends in that barbershop group was crucial. And, and of course, there is the, uh, the element of faith. Right. And even though we never really, at least I never really, uh, connected very strongly with uh, the congregation there in Santa Monica, um, my, my relationship with God was fundamental to my being able to survive that period. Uh, when my daughter was first diagnosed, um, my wife and I were supposed to speak the next day in church on the topic of having faith in troubled times. We, of course, were not able to give that talk. And we realized this was God's way of preparing us for one of the greatest challenges of our life. Wow. Um, yeah, in, in keeping faith through all of that. And I distinctly remember, even though, you know, it's been a couple of years now, one moment that stands out particularly strongly in my mind. I was having uh, some self-doubt, a bit of identity crisis one particular night. And as often happens with uh, depressive thinking, I was overthinking all of the ways that I was failing. 
Um, right. you know, that, that's a favorite topic to dwell on when you're depressed. And um, I was listing all of the ways that I was failing in terms of my church responsibilities. And the, you know, even though my faith was there, the performative element, you know, the, the, the going and doing, uh, the, the serving people in my church calling and such really wasn't there. And I, it wasn't quite actually hearing a voice, but the thought came to me so strongly that it was almost like hearing a voice. Latching onto that word performative and saying, but your work as a, your performance as a father is exemplary. Right. Which is your foremost obligation, you yeah. know, it, and so that's, that's very powerful. Yeah. So that reassurance that I was doing what I needed to do and focusing where I needed to focus was <sighs> a lot of help. Let's just put it in simple yeah, terms. Right. Wow. That that's very inspirational because what you guys had to go through is something that no parent should ever have to go through and, yeah. no, and no child should ever have to go through. And for somebody who deals with a significant uh, mental illness, I mean, it, to me, it almost seems unfathomable how you made it through that time. And I, one thing you just said really touched me and stood out to me, which was watching your daughter and seeing how strong she was that gave you the courage and strength to move forward. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, she's always been a very brave girl. Um, you know, always charging ahead, heedless of risk. And even though, even before her diagnosis, she was having problems with balance and her, her body wasn't responding the way it should. She kept plowing forward with whatever she wanted to do with reckless abandon. And once the reality of what was going on settled in, she started being more careful. But she, she accepted it without... Um, you know, other than when she was getting poked and prodded and, you know, actually caused pain, um, she did not cry. She fought every step of the way. And yeah, sometimes, particularly when she was on the steroids to uh, help reduce the swelling from the tumor, uh, this meant yelling at a lot of medical staff. <laughs> um, but she never succumbed to uh, despair. She never gave up. Right. It's that feistiness that allowed her to fight through it. And so exactly trade that for anything. Yeah. Uh, I am so glad that she is a fighter because uh, yeah. that's what saw her through this. And near the beginning of the process, I, you know, seeing that she had been brave, I still felt to... You know, in connection with a prayer, I still felt it important to say, now, 
insert daughter's name here. Um, even though I know you are a brave girl, you still need to make the choice to be brave. It's still a choice that you can make and you need to make that choice. And that, as much as I like to think that that helped her, it also helped me. Absolutely. To be able to make that choice day after day. Oh, that's fantastic. I feel like this is such good advice for other people facing similar situations, especially right now with so much turmoil in the world. Um, now, with that said, of course, I, I don't mean to trivialize, um, particularly with a discussion of mental health. So many people think that there's a choice involved in um, having mental disorders. And I don't have a choice about being depressed. I don't have a choice about feeling that way. Absolutely. But I do, at the end of the day, have a choice as to what I do with those feelings. Absolutely. I mean, I love what you said about you have a choice to be brave. And even if we don't always succeed in, uh, I don't know, conquering those goals that we have day by day when it comes to our mental health, we can still be brave. That doesn't mean that we're not courageous in trying. And yeah. I, I love that. I think that's awesome. Um, how has your mental illness affected your relationships throughout the years? I mean, that could be with parents, with siblings, with a spouse, with your child. What, what have you noticed uh, about that? Well, my, my mother also struggles with depression, a different form. Um, and so she always understood and having someone in your life who understands is very important and recognizing that unless you've gone through something similar, it's very difficult to understand is tough when looking at, you know, relationships with other people. Um, my wife does her best to be understanding, but she's never experienced, you know, she, of course, everybody has times when they get depressed, but not the, on this chemical level. And we both recognize that she doesn't fully understand, but over the years, she has learned to accept that I, I am what I am, even if she doesn't completely understand it. Right. Um, of course, it causes misunderstandings. It causes tension. It causes, um, it causes arguments. It also causes me to be unable to resolve um, bad feelings in a healthy way. Some mindfulness as we've come to look at the term in the 21st century, um, having the ability to gain some detachment from my inner thought processes and sort of examine it from an objective point of view 
practicing that during my healthy periods can help me to understand during my depressed periods that yes, these feelings are real. Yes, these feelings cannot be ignored or denied, but the thought process that fuels it honestly is not rational. And the unfortunate scenarios that my mind tends to conjure, the rational part of my mind knows that it's not true. You know, it's, it's kind of like I have a demon on my back whispering in my ear saying, you're not good enough. No one can really love you. Um, nobody needs you. People would be better off without you. And the, the healthy part of my mind, I have to keep yelling at the demon and saying, no, you're lying. That's not true. Right. Um, but keeping up that fight is difficult, especially during those low periods. Right. That kind of leads into this next question. You've answered it partly. Um, what types of things have been helpful for you? in terms of treatment and in terms of um, methods to fight through those feelings. And you, you talked about mindfulness and what else has been really helpful in this battle? Oh, uh, of course there's the medication that I also talked about earlier. Um, the times when I go off of my meds are not good. Uh, th those are crucial. Um, I also regularly talk to a therapist um, a lot of therapists will approach things with a perspective of, um, okay, I'll talk to you for a few months and you'll feel better and you'll move on. And I, early on in an, a relationship with a therapist, I generally need to establish, no, that's really not what we're going to be able to accomplish here. I know myself better than that. As soon as I sever ties with a therapist, I start in decline again. It's an important part of my self-care. Right. Um, to just to have that um, every week or two check in with a therapist to talk through what I'm feeling to help sort out everything that's in my brain right. and, and it, get and that objectivity on it. Yes. And at certain points of your life, you may not, the frequency doesn't need to be as much, you know, yeah. it, sometimes when it's rough, it could be every week. Sometimes when it's great, it could be every month. But I agree that it is always nice to have somebody who understands your particular set of issues. <laughs> I mean, for lack of a better yeah. term. And you don't have to go over that all over again every time you need to start seeing a therapist again. Yeah. Every... It, Particularly uh, with the higher levels of stress that have come with uh, the coronavirus and quarantine and such, um, I've obviously, particularly towards the beginning, was in need of a lot more. Um, and so on my weekly schedule, there was talking with my individual therapist on the phone. There was uh, a weekly visit with a couples therapist. Uh, through provided through the Ronald McDonald House Charities, um, 
we stayed at the Ronald McDonald house for a while when my daughter was getting physical therapy in Long Beach. Um, and every two weeks, um, Teddy Bear Cancer Foundation was hosting a therapy group, you know, a group therapy specifically for parents of kids with cancer, um, which they tend to take a summer break, uh, which, but uh, considering the situation, they're going to at least keep it monthly um, going on. And the wild talk therapy is not going to cure. It definitely helps to manage it. Um, and things like this, where I can talk about it and sort of analyze it, uh, help me to keep it under control. That's great. It sounds like you really have made it a priority in your life to take care of your mental health. Yeah, because if I don't, everything else in my life goes straight down the tubes. Right. And so it's important enough to you to be there for your your wife, your daughter, and you know your job, those things that you love and care about so much to prioritize that self-care. Yeah which is fantastic. Yeah. And even though I, people always talk about the importance of loving yourself. I have yet to achieve that goal. Um, I'm still not terribly fond of myself, but I am very much fond of the people who need me. You know, I love the people who need me and because of them, they are my motivation to keep fighting and keep going and keep taking care of myself because I can't take care of anybody else if I don't take care of me. Yeah. I love that. That's such a powerful uh, thought. And it's something that I think a lot of people need to hear. Um, what do you wish that people as a whole society as a whole understood better about mental illness? <sighs> that is a big one. Um, that it's not something you can conveniently wish away or, you know, all of the, while positive thinking helps, um, all the positive thinking in the world is not going to cure a chemical imbalance. Right. It's something that is very, very real. And to, all of the well-meaning suggestions from people who don't get it, the, oh, go and get more exercise. It's like, sure, uh, can you help me find the motivation to exercise? Because I don't have it. I mean, I know it would help, but I can't do it. Right. Um, you know, I... I you simply don't have it in you to take a lot of those pieces of advice. Right. And while it's, we recognize that it's all well-meaning, it's, um, it's fundamentally more frustrating than it is helpful when you hear that over and over. It's just a constant reminder that people don't get it. Sometimes it's just better for them to validate the things you're feeling and to just acknowledge that 
what you're going through is difficult. It makes them feel helpless, I think, not being able to solve it or fix it or make you love yourself or make you happy. But the validating goes a really long way. Yeah. yeah. Just knowing that somebody cares about you and um, and is just there to listen, to give you a hug. Yeah, that, that's one of the things that I really appreciate about working at Teddy Bear as well. Um, they all understand where I'm coming from. A lot of them are themselves uh, cancer survivors. And so nobody there is judgmental about having a rough day. Yeah, they, they understand rough days. Yeah. But, you know, having people who will just, however busy they are, they'll drop it and give you a hug. Right. And uh, obviously everybody has their own love language. Um, mine happens to be physical touch. You know, uh -huh. my, my biggest one, physical touch and words of affirmation. Um, and that's something that they're very happy to provide. Special thanks to Daniel Sowards for the audio editing, to Carrie Randall for the graphic art, and to Shiny Head Productions for the original music.